concern because a lot of people use digital Bibles, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Open with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to wrap up Colossians chapter 2 today. And we're going to also wrap up the first half of the book. And, and after this is a sharp divide in the book of Colossians. The first two chapters of Colossians, and this is very uh, Pauline. If Paul wrote a letter, it's probably going to follow this format. Usually the first half of his book is all what we need to know. Exposition, we call it. It's, it's teaching us truths. And then the second half of the book is exhortation, what we must do based upon what we must know. So if, if the last couple of months, uh, or rather more than that, have been heavy on the what, uh, what we must know aspect of, of Colossians, the next uh, weeks as we continue through this wonderful little book is going to be heavier on how then we must live in response to the greatness of who Christ is and all that he has done for us. And we'll probably have a quick review of those things next week. But let's read uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. That will be the end of the chapter. And then turn our attention to the Lord in prayer. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, you give to us not what is self-made religion, but what is divinely accomplished salvation. And it is all about what you have done. And that, that in, in your goodness, after doing everything necessary to save us, you have saved us so that in the coming ages, that, that eternity upon eternity, you might lavish the goodness of your grace and blessings and riches on us. You are a good and gracious and merciful God beyond what we can comprehend. And, and Lord, I confess, I, I often doubt your goodness. I know that you can do all things, and, and I doubt that you will sometimes. Lord, that's rooted in pride. It's prideful of me to think that my sin is greater than your salvation. That, that when your word promises that you are good and that you do good, that, that somehow to me that is not true. Lord, forgive us of such pride that, that questions you and, and who you are and your goodness to us. Lord, for us this morning, I pray that you would make us a church uh, of servants. Lord, I pray that we would not fall prey to the idea that, uh, that, that church's next steps when there are needs is to, uh, to hire the next professional, but that we would see that, uh, that, that those who do the work of the ministry, the elder, the pastor, the overseer, that, that the role there is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Lord, that every single one of us, when we, when we received our call to believe, received our call to minister, that each of us is to be a gospel minister. Each of us is to do the work of the ministry in and outside of the church. Lord, we may, may we be a church that never has need of servants because we are a church full of them. That we would willingly serve one another and serve the world. Ultimately, not that we might serve them, but that we might serve you through them. That our service might be to you. Lord, we pray this morning for Life Church. We pray that you would make them faithful to the gospel, that you would make them faithful to your plan, that you would uh, give them and us a great trust and confidence in your word and your spirit to do the work of the ministry. That we would not uh, fall prey to uh, prideful ideas that, that what we do is ultimately what uh, saves or, or matures anybody that we just want to be faithful to your plan and that in our faithfulness you do what we cannot and that is to cause growth, whether that be new life in Christ or whether that be uh, the daily maturing of, of your saints. Lord, we pray also this morning for Bob and Teresa Reister. We, we thank you for the good reports that they have uh, given to us that many people have returned to their Discovery Bible study and that there's also a few new students there. Um, Lord, we pray that you would bring fruit to that and that, uh, that there would be open hearts to the gospel among these students and among the English students as well, and that new students would join those classes. Lord, we thank you that they have resumed interactions uh, with a, a neighbor, uh, Mr. Kawamoto, and, and Lord, we ask that you, would, um, that you would just draw him to yourself and that he might hear the gospel and believe and, and be saved Lord, we pray that their evangelism training would bear fruit and that the church there uh, would, would be willing to reach out and to share the gospel. Lord, we pray the same for us as we know that the call to, uh, to share the gospel is on all of us, that every single one of us is called to be gospel witnesses. And so, Lord, make not only that church there, but us here faithful to share the gospel. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would give them the ability, as they've asked us to pray, to hear uh, Japanese speakers who... Uh, I guess tend to mumble anyways and with the addition of masks makes it uh, difficult for them to hear and understand and so Lord I pray that you would help them to be able to uh, to speak with the, the locals there as they uh, seek to share the gospel and get to know people. Lord as we look to your word today we ask that you would give us open eyes to understand it and soft hearts to receive it. Lord we pray that as we uh, as we see uh, the world around us uh, offering all kinds of solutions and answers and, and plausible arguments that we would be able to see through them, that we would be set free from them in Christ. Lord, I pray particularly this morning for, uh, for our young children and teens and, and as they go off into college and even college students, Lord, in, 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 in environments where worldly systems are, uh, are prevalent and present and, uh, and, and question is called into the things uh, that, that you say are true and good. Lord, I pray that we would not only be faithful as parents to disciple our children, that we would be faithful as a church uh, to teach them the word and implant that into their hearts, but that you would be faithful to keep them as they go off into environments that are often hostile, Lord. And Lord, as we see... Um, so many young people uh, walking away from the faith these days. Uh, Lord, may we, uh, we meet, may we be faithful to your word and faithful to your plan and faithful to, to the gospel and, and its sufficiency uh, to keep us from that. Lord, would you keep us 
close to you? Would you give our, uh, our, our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren a, a deep and abiding and, and per, uh, persevering faith, even in the face of the difficulties of the world around us? And Lord, would you show us this morning how Christ has set us free from those things? And that we can see through them and that we can cling to him with great hope as the answer to all things. The answer to fix all the problems in the world. So let us have high and lofty thoughts of him today and all that he has done for us. Give us soft hearts to obey your word as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Uh, before moving to Walla Walla, I served as a chaplain at St. Anthony Hospital in Pendleton. I started out working there in hospice, and then uh, when the hospice program closed, I transitioned to an on-call chaplain uh, in the hospital. And so I would only get called in if the situation was bad or dire. Uh, there was one night, uh, late at night, where I received a call to come in and meet with a gentleman who was on comfort care, which is just another way of saying that he was dying. And he was there in the hospital to be kept comfortable until he did. And I went into his room and I introduced myself and we had a little bit of casual conversation. And then he looked at me and he said, he said I, think, I think people can go to heaven. I, I think I've done enough good things to go there. And he looked at me and he said, what do you think? Of course, it's a, a bit of an interesting environment in the hospital. And I said, you're asking me to share with you what I think? And he said, yes. And I said, I would be happy to share with you what I think. I think that all of us are sinners by choice and by nature, that we have all violated God's law, that we have all violated conformity to his character, and that God is rightly and justly angry with us for that sin. But then in great love, he sent his son to, to perfectly obey his law, to, to live the life that I couldn't live, and then to die in my place, taking the consequence of my sin, the due penalty of what I had earned for my wrongdoing. And three days later, I believe he was raised from the dead in victory, vindicated in his accomplishment of paying for my sin and offering life to all who would believe. You cannot earn it. You cannot do enough good things to make up for our sin. You simply have to trust Christ as the one who did everything necessary. And that when we trust him and stop trying to earn salvation, but understand that Christ has earned it for us, God graciously and willingly gives it to us. And he paused for quite a while, obviously thinking. And I sat there praying for him. And he looked at me and he said, you know, that just doesn't seem right. Don't we have to do something? In Genesis 3, we find that after God, having created us uh, perfectly in his image and put us in the garden, notice, I'll give a brief Mother's Day insertion here, uh, notice that, that, uh, that God creates Adam and he puts him in the garden and Adam was lonely. Before the fall, before sin, God allowed Adam to be lonely. And then he said, after six days of saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. Don't be offended by the term helper. Six other times in the, in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew term is used to call God Israel's helper. It is not a derogatory term. And he makes a woman. And there's great representation of God in the Trinity. And everything about what it means to be a man is representative of who God is. And everything about what it means to be a woman, apart from sin, is representative of who God is. And God says it is very And then we decided to take matters in our own hands. Adam and Eve grab this tree from the fruit of which they are told not to eat. And they take and they look at this fruit and it seemed to them that it was good. Now this is a a lie, it's a delusion. God was good and he created them good. And yet they they took a hold of this fruit and, and in their own eyes, perceiving it to be good, they decided that God must not be good. I think in that moment they're thinking God cannot be. This will give you great insight into our culture today and from Adam to today. God cannot both be good and tell me no. And so I am going to define what is good for myself. And I'm going to eat what God has told me is not good to eat. And instantly, our relationship with God was broken. Instantly, the relationship with Adam and Eve was broken. Sin, no matter how private you believe it to be, always hurts relationships. Sin is destructive to the relationships around you. It is destructive to your relationships with God. It is destructive to your relationships with others. Sin always tears apart relationships. And in that moment, it it was torn apart. And ever since, we've been trying to, to reinvent ways to get back to God. God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. Uh, he, he blocked them from entrance. We were separated from heaven, separated from God, separated from the garden, separated from his goodness. Having decided that we would determine what was good, we found out just how not good it really was. That God's one prohibition was for their good. But ever since, we've been trying to invent ways to get back in. And particularly, we do so with merit. There is something deep in us, deeply prideful, that says, I must earn it. And God says, no, it's a free gift. Uh, You can't earn it. I earned it for you. And we go, that can't be right. We want to earn it. We want to be deserving. In short, we want to get in to God's good favor, back into relationship with him, into his his heaven, into his paradise, in, in ways other than grace. I think Jesus illustrates this point in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. We probably all know this passage where where Jesus, referring to a, a sheepfold, says that he is the door. A sheepfold would have been a place where you put sheep at night, and there was one way in and one way out. And Jesus in John chapter 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you try and sneak your way into heaven, into the sheepfold, into the community of God's people by any way other than him, you can't get in. You're not a sheep. You're a thief and a robber. You're trying to steal something from God. 
entrance into his kingdom. The interesting thing is, it's already free. If we'll just enter in by the right way. Jesus then goes on to say, but he who enters by the door is is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before him, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. Now, particularly, he's talking here to religious leaders who try and sneak into the sheepfold and steal sheep and, and provide and, and move sheep to another flock. But then, upon explaining things, Jesus says, look, there is no way to get in or out, no entrance into the kingdom, no way to get into God's good graces but by me. And anybody who tries to climb in another way or follows a thief or a robber uh, trying to climb in another way is not welcome in. They only do damage to the sheep. I said last week, or maybe it was the week before, I don't remember exactly, that I think TV uh, and, and internet, as wonderful as it is, has allowed for some of the most uh, dangerous thieves and robbers to have voice. And to call us to earn our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. There is no way in other than what Jesus has done. And there is something built into us, deeply prideful, that says it can't just be free. That doesn't seem right. Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to earn something? Don't I have to be good enough? If, if, you, if you just get baptized, then you can be saved. You have to do something. If you raise your hand, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, you, you'll be saved. I would charge that if somebody genuinely believes in Jesus Christ, before they raise a hand, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, or get baptized, they are already saved. Because it is the act of trusting Christ, turning away from our sin and turning towards him that saves us. There is nothing that we have to do. And no amount of our own working will fix the problem. And here in this particular section of Colossians, this is what Paul has been warning us against. He's been warning us about systems that try and sneak in another way. Systems that cannot fix the problem of sin. In verses in 16 and 17, look at those with me, it's legalism. Legalism is religious human achievement. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It doesn't matter whether you do the Daniel diet or don't do the Daniel diet, worship Saturday morning, Sunday morning, Saturday night, Sunday night. These are not the things that save us. 
And legalism is this system of religious human achievement that says, I can earn favor with God. I can earn God's good blessing. I can earn his affection by my own religious achievement. And then in verses 18 and 19, he warns us of mysticism. Mysticism is this allegedly deeper spiritual experience that's only available to some. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Legalism doesn't earn God's favor. Christ has done that. Mysticism does not earn God's favor. Christ has done that, and so we must cling to the head. And in these verses, verses 20 through 23 today, we're going to see that Paul is mostly addressing asceticism, which is rigorous self-denial. We've probably all heard stories of uh, monks who lived in the wilderness or uh, on the top of a tower or... uh, I mean, even nuns living in these lives of rigorous self-denial in an effort to earn God's favor. And and while Paul primarily deals with that in these verses today, he kind of gets more detailed than that. And so today, I want us to see four deceptions that Jesus has freed us from. Four deceptions that Jesus has freed us from. The first is worldly systems in verse 20. If with Christ, now this word if here in Paul, uh, is particularly as Paul likes to use it, it's not bringing things into question. It's really a, a, a since. It is an emphatic statement. Since with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. This word elemental spirits is uh, it's a very vague term. I think Paul uses it intentionally. It should draw us back up to verse 8 where we're told to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And here he says, since you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. I think what he is referring to is is any worldly system that is devised to deal with the problem of sin. And the world is good at devising systems. They don't work. You can't sneak into the sheepfold. They don't help. Turn with me, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll give you a second to turn there as I give us a little bit of of background on the author. Uh, Solomon was king. He was the son of David. And God asked him what he wanted. And Solomon asked for wisdom. Wisdom to be king. And God said, because you have not asked for riches or anything else, I will give you wisdom. And Solomon was the most wise man who ever lived. And and kings and queens came to hear his wisdom. The queen of Sheba came to hear his wisdom. And in Ecclesiastes, he is telling us about what makes someone happy. And listen to the things that he tried. And and we'll see even the worldly systems in them today. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he's he's telling us of, of the vanity of these ways in which he sought happiness. I said in my heart, verse 1, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This is this is hedonism. This is this is Cheryl Crow. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it it makes you happy, do it. 
This is hedonism. We see it all around the world. Whatever it is that makes you happy, just just do it. It can't be that bad. And Solomon says, I looked for happiness in this as well. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. It didn't work. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. This is substance abuse. Maybe, maybe an external substance will make me happy. Maybe alcohol will make me happy. Maybe drugs will make me happy. But my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the, the few days of his life. Verse 4, he begins to explain how he sought joy in significance. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools with which to water the forests of growing trees. Verse 7, money. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. Their sex, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and here's self-indulgence, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart, for my heart found pleasure in my toil, and th there's work, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I expended doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Striving after hevel, after smoke, after vapor, did nothing. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. Now he is, in, is seeking uh, uh, satisfaction in intellect and wisdom. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. In other words, they all die. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Look at what Solomon tried. Hedonism, alcohol, significance, wealth, sex, self-indulgence, work, intellect, and wisdom. And in the end, none of it made him happy. And if we fast forward to the very end of the book, he closes it this way. He says, the end of all matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon found more delight in the fear of the Lord than pursuing any and every desire he had. But the world around us tells us that if you will just pursue these things, you'll find happiness. They're not new things. There's nothing new under the sun. People are still pursuing happiness in the same way. We're still inventing worldly systems to try and make us happy. And it's not working out. We're seeing a, 
just a tremendous shift in some of the systems that, that were put in place in our culture. America was founded on the idea that equal opportunity would lead to happiness. It didn't work. And so now we're shifting. We're shifting to an ideology that says it's not equal opportunity that makes people happy. It's equal outcome that makes people happy. And it's not going to work. America was founded on the idea that religious freedom would make people happy. It did not work. Now our culture is fighting to curb religious liberty to make it happy, particularly for the sake of sexual revolution. The industrial revolution and modernism were supposed to save the world. It resulted in two world wars and two atomic bombs. Worldly systems don't work. And Jesus has freed them from them. What are the worldly systems of our day? Number one, self-definition. I think Adam and Eve were guilty of this. We, can, we believe we can define for ourselves what is good. Today, it takes the form of self-identified gender confusion. God doesn't define me. God didn't make me male or female. I'm whoever I decide to be. It, when, when we start this, uh, when, it's probably going to be Wednesday night. When we start this Wednesday, Wednesday night series, we're going to look at this. Another one is justice. Uh, by the way, justice biblically defined is not the same thing as justice culturally defined. We're going to talk about that on Wednesday nights as well. But again, this is the idea of equal outcomes. That, that if everybody has equal outcome, if skin color doesn't matter, if gender doesn't matter, if everybody can do anything they want to make themselves happy, if everybody has equal outcomes then we'll all be happy. But guess what? In the end, it's not going to work. We're just going to have to make ourselves new systems. The world purports many systems that will make everybody happy or they, that claim to make everybody happy, and they just don't work. Honestly, one of the ones that baffles me is how many Christians are, are intent on towing a political party line. Either party, take your pick. The Jews were awaiting a political Messiah. But Jesus didn't come to be a politician. He put no hope in politics. He knew it would not save the world. He came and, and, and offered himself. Now, I'm not saying voting doesn't matter. But I'm saying if you fill both houses, the Supreme Court and the Oval Office, with Republicans or Democrats it's still just all going to be a broken world. It is only Jesus Christ who saves. It is only his death and resurrection that can free us. And we get to free ourselves. Not really, it is Christ who has freed us, but we can start thinking in terms of those freedoms that we don't have to adopt or depend upon or put our hope in worldly systems because they just don't work. But Jesus Christ does. The second deception that Jesus has freed us from is legalistic regulations. And we see this uh, back in Colossians in verses 20b through 22a. Why? Since, we've been, uh, since we have died to the elemental spirits of the world, these worldly systems, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. 
This is the same thing as legalism, and because of that, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it today, but it is, it is following rules to earn God's favor. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch is probably a reference to Jewish law. They couldn't touch dead bodies. They couldn't eat anything that was unclean, pork or catfish or milk and meat at the same meal, etc. These kind of regulations, as Paul has them, have no value. Why do they have no value? Because they all perish as they are used. Well, what does that mean? It means you can give great attention to never eating anything unclean, never eating catfish, never eating pork, never eating meat at all, following some form of of Old Testament Jewish law, dietary laws. But guess what? The moment you eat that, within about 24 hours, that food becomes something else. It perishes as it is consumed. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that saves him. It's not what we eat. that that, It's not following these regulations that give us some kind of value. The rules look different today, but we do the same thing. God will love me more if I refrain from alcohol. God loves me more because I'm not legalistic and I partake of alcohol. God loves me more or likes me more or approves of me more if I watch movies or if I don't, if I vote Republican or Democrat, depending on how I educate my children, what what day of the week I worship on, whether I eat meat or don't. Now, let me tell you, these things may matter. These things may be helpful. And freedom in Christ is never licensed to sin. And so we can be certain that if we use our freedom for sin, that God will certainly be disappointed with us. But none of these things earn uh, God's favor. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus earns God's favor. God accepts us and approves of us on the merit of someone else. And it is he who has done everything necessary to earn our favor with God and forgiveness. And and no amount of legalistic rule following will earn God's favor. The third deception that Jesus has set us free from is human teachings. Verse 22b, Paul says after legalism, he says that all of these things are according to human precepts and teachings. There's nothing wrong with precepts and teachings. But here, it is defined as human precepts and teachings, which is the opposite of godly precepts and teachings. I got news for you. Education cannot save humanity or the planet. Medicine will never cause people to live forever when God has declared that because of our sin, we will die. Environmentalism will never stop global warming when God has declared that he will destroy it with fire. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The cross is foolishness to the perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, this is Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God's plan of redemption and salvation is foolishness to the perishing. It is foolishness to the one who wants to climb in another way. It is foolishness to the one who wants to earn it. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God has set us free from human worldly precepts and teaching and wisdom. And thus we must evaluate everything that the world purports against God's word. This is not to say there is, to be, there is no truth found outside of what's in Scripture. You will not find uh, the instructions to, to solve 2 plus 2 in Scripture. But 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true. Unless you go to a Seattle school district school, uh, then there's no right and wrong answers anymore. That's true, by the way. The school board there has decided that there is no right or wrong answers to math. I, I think I've said this from the pulpit before, but I want to ask them if they're going to allow that to be true for their accountants. We'll find how quickly that breaks down. But everything that is taught as true outside of Scripture, we evaluate against Scripture because it is the foolishness of God, which is a silly term, and Paul uses it in that way on purpose, to shame the wise. And fourthly, la the last deception that Christ has freed us from is external controls. Verse 23, external controls. These, all of these things, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. By the way, Christian, the Christian church for the last 20 or 30 years seems to be afraid of the word religion. The Bible is not. The Bible is only afraid of self-made religion, not God-made religion. We shouldn't be afraid of the term religion. But here, Paul is saying that all of these things, they have the appearance of wisdom. Because there is that thing built into us that says, I have to earn it somehow. I have to have some kind of merit. I have to be deserving. And so they appear to have wisdom in promoting religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things appear helpful, but in reality, they're not. They promote self-made religion. They provoke, promote asceticism. They promote severity to the body, but they don't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. Why not? Why don't they stop indulgence to the flesh? Because God's desire isn't just that we would submit to a system of rules. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Listen to this. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed have been by the law. Do you catch that? If a law had been given that could give life. In other words, there is no law that can give life to dead sinners. God is not merely trying to uh, to exert an external system of control and rules upon us to save us. If a law could have been given that would give life, God would have done that. But God's plan was not to give us an external system of rules, but deep inside of us to give us eternal life through his son, to give us new hearts. God gives us spiritual life, even though our bodies are still decaying under the effects of sin. God doesn't want merely to impose a system of rules on us, though there are some of those, and that's okay. He wants to change us from the inside out. That's what we see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. That in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, but by the circumcision of Christ. Something inside of me, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God wants to make us new from the inside out. He wants to give us new hearts, new lives. So if God doesn't use external rules, what does he use? Well, the first and foremost answer is faith, simple trust. If you are still trying to sneak in another way, if you're still trying to be good enough, if you're still trying to curry favor with God or earn his favor or merit or grace, please stop today and simply trust what Christ has done. That is always the first step and the continuing step. We don't trust Christ and then move on. We preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We we die to ourselves daily. We trust him daily. But if you have trusted Jesus, you must put yourself in a place to grow. And we do that through what has historically in the church been called ordinary means of grace. Paul has been arguing uh, uh, with us in verses particularly 18 and 19 that we should not be looking for extraordinary means of grace. So many Christians are out there hop, trying, attempting to hop from one extraordinary thing to another. But that's not how God works. God grows us like plants, bit by bit, every day. And we do, he does this through ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? The 88th question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? In other words, what must we do to put ourselves in a position for God to grow us? The answer is this. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefit of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, the sacraments, and prayer. This is not looking for extraordinary things. It is a a life lived regularly in the word, in prayer, and in the fellowship of the local church. I promise you, if your life is void of regular reading of God's word, regular prayer, and regular fellowship with the church, you are relegating yourself to a powerless life. 
a life that, that is, is easily blown and tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by human and, uh, schemes, by, by plausible arguments, by empty philosophy and deceit. You'll be stuck looking for fake, deeper experiences to fill the void of your own efforts. The world cannot save you, and it cannot satisfy you. Your own efforts as a religion cannot save or satisfy you. Only Jesus can do that. And he does so through ordinary means of his word, of prayer, and in the fellowship of the local church. Lord, thank you for freeing us from worldly systems that try and earn what cannot be earned, that try and satisfy with the unsatisfactory, that try and give significance with the insignificant. But that you have called us to Christ the power and wisdom of you for salvation. And so we preach him crucified. And Lord, we know that there is only salvation there. That he is the only means by which one can be saved. That he is the only door into the fold. And that you and you alone are the only thing that can satisfy the deep longings of our soul. Lord, may we as a church, as individuals, be committed and devoted to ordinary means of grace. That we might be freed from these legalistic, ascetic, fake, worldly systems. Lord, may we instruct our children in how to sustain and maintain healthy spiritual lives in regular, daily, ordinary means of grace. May they see them in us. May we help them learn those habits. May we be committed to those things and putting ourselves in the deep soil of your word and your church and in prayer so that you might grow us into the saints that you have called us to be. Lord, we are free from our own attempts to earn salvation and to earn favor. And may we rest and trust in what Christ has done for us. And may we proclaim that rest and trust to the world around us for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name.